Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verses 1 to 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 23, 1 to 11. There's a phrase I, I heard growing up that was constant. Walk the walk and talk the talk. If you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. It was told to me constantly. The reason is because I am quite the trash talker. <laughs> Blake's played basketball with me before he knows. I'm no good at basketball. I don't have to be good at the sport to, tra- to talk trash. I am quite the trash talker. Often am accused of not being able to walk the walk after I talk the talk. Some passages in Scripture get so close to the heart of what it means to be a Christian that it is sometimes difficult to even talk about, to describe accurately. And so my hope is this morning that in the passage that we're reading, we will see that what Jesus is talking to His disciples about is really the heart of what it means to be a Christian. The heart of what it means to actually follow after Him. And He's going to contrast the way His disciples move through life with the way the Pharisees approach the kingdom of God. With that in mind, let's read our passage, Matthew 23, 1-12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to His disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they te- whatever they tell you but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at, the, at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have read your word. Now I pray that you would give us understanding of it. This text is so simple and yet so difficult at the same time. Will you please give us ears to hear and hearts to obey in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In chapter 23, the whole chapter of 23, pretty much, is going to be Jesus condemning the Pharisees and the scribes. And we've seen that. You've heard me tell you that for some time now. You can see that even here in the first 12 verses that we've already read. But there, these Pharisees and scribes that Jesus is attacking is really the first brick that He's pulling down off the edifice of the whole Jewish system of worship. 
The second is going to be the temple in chapter 24, which is next, well, which is a few weeks from now, after Easter. He's going to begin not only attacking the Pharisees, he's going to move to the Jewish temple structure in chapter 24. So all this tension has been really building in amongst, from, from Jesus in amongst the crowd that he's teaching with the scribes and the Pharisees standing right there next to him. There's, there's this rising tension that's coming to bear and Jesus is going right after the Pharisees and the scribes, attacking the Jewish religious system. And so he did that first a few weeks ago with three parables where the end of it was basically the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders. They're not even going to heaven. To which the leaders respond with three questions, all designed to trap Jesus because the crowds think that he's a prophet and they respect him and revere him. And so they want to discredit him in front of the crowds. And so they ask him these three questions to try to trap him. Now, I know what you've been thinking. I've said that over the last few weeks, and I've reiterated that point time and again over the last few weeks. And you thought, does he think we're deaf? We don't remember what happened last week. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Some of it I repeat because there may be people here that are new or haven't joined with us the whole time, and I want them to understand the context of the passage. But for the rest of us, I want to drill down and into our heads what is the meaning of this section of the book that we're in, where Jesus is attacking the Jewish religious system because I know that I'm looking forward to chapter 24, where Jesus is going to attack the temple, and I want us to understand what Jesus is saying there in 24 and what He is not saying. Because chapter 24 in Matthew, has been taken and run way off the rails in the recent past. And so I want us to understand the context of what Jesus is doing so that when we get there it makes sense. Now remember who these scribes and Pharisees are and what position they hold in Judaism. It's important to remember who your people are, who your leaders are, and what function they serve in the Jewish system. The term Pharisee and the term Sadducee were really more like theological positions than they were positions of payment. It would be similar to like in our, our day and age where we might call someone a Republican or a Democrat. Now, when you say that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they earn their living by being a Republican or Democrat. It may just mean that they are politically affiliated with the Republican ideology or the Democrat ideology. But it also tells you a good bit about how they think about the world around them, right? And how they think about politics and all of those kinds of things. I'm not trying to get political, okay? So just everybody relax, all right? <laughs> In, a, in the same way, when you say Pharisee or Sadducee, it tells you a lot about the way that they think about the Bible. For instance, the Pharisees saw the whole Old Testament as authoritative, whereas the Sadducees just the first five books of the Old Testament. It tells you a lot about how they see the resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees believed that there would be a resurrection one day from the dead. The Sadducees did not, because they were sad, you see. Um, you've heard this before, I think. 
So it tells you a lot about how they see the world and how, how they relate. However, so that, that's, that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees were kind of like an ideology. So you might belong to the Pharisee group, but you might be a carpenter. Or you might be something else. You might earn your living some other way. However, the scribes were teachers. The scribes were teachers in the synagogues. They were teachers in the temples. They were the experts. They had positions of authority in synagogues and temples all over the land. Plus, they probably most likely represented the Pharisaical ideology of the way that they saw the Bible. They taught the whole thing. They taught the whole Old Testament. They knew it backwards and forwards. They belonged in uh, part to the Pharisees' theology or way of seeing the text. So a scribe who was a teacher was most likely a Pharisee. Now this is helpful to remember because in chapter 23, Jesus is going to continually reiterate the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees. So he means teachers in general and Pharisees in theology. So they are teachers and they are Pharisaical in their theology. It's not really two different groups of people as much as it is really one group of people who are the teachers and specifically they represent that Pharisaical ideology. Now where did the Sadducees go? They're not even going to be mentioned in chapter 23. Where did they go? Why isn't he condemning them? Well, surely he doesn't agree with them. He told them just a few weeks ago, you don't read your Bibles, do you? It's obvious because of your theology. So Jesus doesn't align himself in any way with the Sadducees. Why isn't he condemning them? Well, it's most likely because they had little to do in the way of directly teaching the people. As the people come and receive teaching from people, it's going to be scribes who are likely belonging to the Pharisaical school of thought. The high priest would have been a Sadducee. Almost all the Sanhedrin, which would have been the Supreme Court kind of, of the Jews, would have likely been Sadducee. But that would have been pretty much it. They were rich aristocracy. They represented very few people in the actual land. Their positions on the Scripture weren't widely held by anybody. And so, why does he not spend his time condemning them? Because they had little to do with the day-to-day teaching of the everyday person. The person who would come and receive teaching in the synagogues or in the temple. In our text this morning... Jesus is turning to his own audience. You can see him addressing there his disciples. And when it says disciples, it it means obviously the twelve in particular. There's the broader group of disciples that will also be sent out and will have positions of authority of some sort in the church. The 70 group of broader 70 people that also followed him as disciples. And then there's just the regular Galileans that have been with him since he walked on the water and since they've seen him heal all these people in Galilee and multiply the bread and all of these kinds of things. These Galileans are also following. They too are his disciples. He's turning and talking to them. And he's going to command them to be different than that group of scribes and Pharisees. That group of teachers of the law. That group that they, by the way, revere They look up to, they see as authoritative and having some responsibility in Judaism. And so we're going to see 
the difference in this passage between a disciple of Jesus Christ and a disciple of the Pharisees. A a child of heaven and a child of the religion of the world, so to speak. And so once again, we have our text broken down into two sections here. The first is going to be dealing with the Pharisees and the second with the Christians. And I want you to see how the two are different. First, let's look at the Pharisees. Look at verse 1. So Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So the 12, the 70, and the broader crowds from Galilee that have followed him. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feasts and and the best seats of the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. Now notice here, there's two main criticisms that Jesus is going to give of these scribes and Pharisees. There's two big criticisms that he's going to give. The first one is there at the end of verse 3, where he says, they preach, but they do not practice. They preach, but they do not practice. They want to be seen is going to be the second one. We'll get to that in a second. But they preach and do not practice. Now there's this idea floating around the first century uh, Jerusalem that, and, and, and the broader area of the land that the Pharisees, the scribes, perhaps the Sadducees, have attained a certain level of holiness. They've got it figured out. They have arrived, as it were. Remember back in Matthew 5.20, where he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember when he said that? That's supposed to be a shocking thing to them. All the people are supposed to look at him when he said that and go, wait, my righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of those whom God has exalted to the position of teacher over Israel? Well, I'm out. How could I, little old me, possibly have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. They know the Bible backwards and forwards. They teach it for crying out loud. You want my righteousness to exceed theirs? I'm out. There's no chance. So there's a thought among the people that the scribes and the Pharisees actually have it figured out. They have arrived. God has exalted them to this position because of their righteousness. But amongst modern Bible readers, we also have the same thought, don't we? Don't we sometimes describe the Old Testament or the Jews as, well, those are the people that think that they can be saved by works? Those are the people that think that they can be saved, that their righteousness can come to them by works? Don't we often say about them, well, they they thought they could earn their salvation. They thought salvation comes by works of the law. But that's not really true. That's certainly a lot of what they teach, but that's not how they live. In fact, it's actually the opposite. They taught that righteousness came by by works, sure. But it was works that they didn't even bother to do. That's what Jesus is saying. No, no, no. It's not 
that they thought their righteousness could be achieved by their works. It's that they didn't even try to do the works. They taught them, but didn't walk the walk. However, I want you to look at verse 2. I want you to pay close attention to it because it stands out as really weird in the whole passage. But they sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Now think about that for just a second. They have an authoritative position inside the temple. Listen to what Jesus is telling the, the crowd and his disciples. He's about to unleash seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees. And yet he turns to his own disciples and he says, but they sit on the seat of Moses, so listen to them and do what they tell you. He's recognizing that they have an authoritative position inside the temple and the synagogues, so they have to be obeyed. Now, I think this seems strange because he's going to condemn them for the whole rest of the chapter. Imagine a husband turns to his children and says to his children, listen to your mother, and then turns to their mother right there in front of them and says, but you're a hypocrite and you're going to hell. It doesn't inspire confidence in the heart of the child to listen to his mother, right? So it seems a little weird that Jesus would be telling them this and then turn and lambast the scribes and the Pharisees right in front of them. But the scribes have an authoritative position in which God has placed them. That's what it means to sit on Moses' seat. You're delivering the teaching of the law to the people and... God has placed you on that seat. God has put you in that place. So they're responsible for bringing that teaching of the law to the people. Which, by the way, they will be held accountable for. Which is the reason why James says, the book of James, not James, the member of our church. Though I'm sure you also say it too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, teachers will be held accountable in a more strict judgment for what they say, and that's no less the case here for the scribes and Pharisees. But notice that he doesn't argue that everything they teach is incorrect. That's, that's not what he argues. He's gone against them many times in the gospel. We know he doesn't agree with everything that they teach. We know that they're teaching things that are not the way God intended. In the Sermon on the Mount, as an example, he even says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, You've heard it said by the scribes and Pharisees, but I say to you. So it's not, he doesn't agree with everything that they've said, but their instruction is to be obeyed because of the position that God has placed them. So he says they're to do and observe, which probably means like the feasts and festivals they're to come to. They're to do and observe all the things, the tithing, the prayers, and so on. They're to do all of those things that they're taught by the scribes and Pharisees. Some say Jesus has to be being sarcastic here. He's not being real, right? He's, he's being sarcastic because then he goes on to... It just doesn't make sense. Why does he go on to criticize them so much and then tell them to obey them? I mean, can a father really expect his children to obey their mother when he's turned around and criticized her in front of the children? Surely not. I think he means all that he's saying. I don't think he's being sarcastic here. I think he really means it. I think what he means to say is that the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees will come to an end. 
There is a moment where they will no longer sit on Moses' seat, but their judgment is not going to be brought about by an insurrection from Jesus' disciples. Jesus himself will stand in front of, in front of both uh, Pontius Pilate and in front of the high priest, Caiaphas, and he will explain to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would come and take it by force. But it's not. So you have no authority and I don't really care. Jesus will say that as he's on his way to death. So he's telling his disciples, look, their authority is going to come to an end one day. And he's going to tell them that in the next chapter. Their authority is absolutely going to come to an end. They're no longer going to be teaching and preaching. But it's not going to become, come about to an end by you. It's not going to be an insurrection by you. Think about how radical on the one hand this is. And then think about how biblical on the other hand this is. It would be very common and very human for Jesus to start a rebellion right here and for him to say to his disciples, look, these people are going to be overthrown so you don't have to listen to them anymore. It would be very human for him to remove their authority in the eyes of the disciples right here. But that would be inconsistent with the rest of the Bible where God's people, as we've seen in Romans 13, as we've seen in a number of places, where God's people are called to submit to governing authorities who are vile, who are awful people. It's very consistent with the Bible, with the Bible's teaching as a whole, for Jesus to say, look, the kingdom that you belong to can withstand the temporary terrible teaching and leading by these people. It can withstand it. Do what they tell you. Their authority will be overthrown, but it's going to be brought about by God. God is going to justly remove these people. And you, in submitting to their authority over you, and swearing your allegiance to Christ, who is the King, you doing that is demonstrating that you trust that God is actually sovereign. That God is going to justly bring about their ending. But this is precisely how they preach and don't practice. Look at this. Look at verse 4. He says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. We've seen an example of this already when Jesus and his disciples are hungry. You remember this in Matthew 12? They're, they're hungry, and it happens to be the Sabbath day, and they happen to stumble across a, gra- a field of grain, a wheat field. And they pluck the heads of grain off the wheat stalks and begin to you know, rub them in their hands and, and eat them like a person that's hungry would do. This, to the Pharisees, on the Sabbath day is considered harvesting, Harvesting on the Sabbath day is a big no-no, and the Pharisees bust them right there in the yard. Call Jesus to the carpet right there in front of everyone. How dare you go about working on the Sabbath? The Sabbath is to be holy, don't you know? The burden that they're placing on Jesus and the disciples in that moment, in Matthew 12, is that you must starve in order to fulfill the law of the Sabbath. Which is really not true, because they're commanding things 
that are really not in the law. You do have to keep the Sabbath holy. You don't work on the Sabbath. That's a clear teaching, especially in the Old Testament. But it's not clear what constitutes work exactly. And so the Pharisees make up a bunch of laws that they hold people to and they put on people. They're burdens that are hard to bear. They're things that are not in the law, but they neglect the weightier matters of the law. Namely, that their neighbor is standing in front of, in front of them and he's starving. So they tell people, well, if you want to obey the law of the Sabbath, then you can't pluck a head of grain, even in the most dire of circumstances, even when you're terribly hungry, to which Jesus reminds them that David did this. And they wouldn't say anything about David. But they neglect the weightier matters of the law for their neighbor on that same Sabbath day. So they command one thing on the Sabbath day, you have to starve. But then on the other side, they neglect the weightier matters which Jesus defines as mercy. So, you have to do this, but on the same Sabbath day, I'm not going to extend mercy to my neighbor. So they tie up this heavy burden of what it means to obey God and His law, and then they turn around in their own lives and destroy the foundation of the law, which is built upon mercy, which Jesus has already told them twice. So these are the reasons that Jesus says about them in Matthew 15, 6. So for the sake of your tradition... You have made void the Word of God. Because they found a way to try to keep the law in some way or satisfy their own conscience, and then on the other side, neglect what is really the essence of the law, which is mercy. They've made void the Word of God. And then Matthew 23, 23, which is coming up next week, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. But see, this is also the exact opposite of how Jesus describes himself. This is very important to understand. The way he describes the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes here is exactly the opposite of how he describes himself. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Exactly the opposite of how he describes the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus' yoke is easy and light. But hold on just a second. Before we let just Jesus get away with that statement, okay? Not that he can't. He's the Lord. That's fine. He can do that. You might think his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Isn't this the same guy that in Matthew 5, 48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Isn't it the same Jesus that said that? Letters are in red. Checks out, it's Jesus that said that. How is that easy and light? That doesn't feel like an easy and light burden. I must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect? 
But see, understand what Jesus is doing and how He's differentiating Himself and His disciples from that of the Pharisees. Jesus is not compromising, on the one hand, one ounce of the righteousness God requires. He's telling you, point blank, what God requires is absolute, total perfection. And His problem with the Pharisees is not what they're teaching, really. At least not here. It's not really what they're teaching. He's even going to say in 23.23, which we just read, He says, these you ought to have done. About their tithing. They tithe the you know, mint and dill and cumin and all of that kind of stuff. He doesn't really have a problem with their tithing of that. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the weightier matters. You should have done both. You should have walked the walk. You should have talked the talk and walked the walk. You tried to talk the talk, kind of, and then didn't walk the walk. That is the problem. They neglected the weightier matters. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, look at what he's doing. He's telling you that perfection from you, absolute, total moral perfection, in order to enter the kingdom of God, total moral perfection is required for you. So he's not buckling one ounce on that. And, on the other hand, he's actually walking the walk. He's walking out absolute, total moral perfection. But, then he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Which means, in other words... He hasn't neglected the weightier matters of the law like mercy. So when you, that wretched sinner, or me, that wretched sinner that we are, come before Jesus, He doesn't look to us and say, He requires absolute total moral perfection, and I have achieved absolute total moral perfection, and you are a sinner, therefore get out of my presence. No. In addition to Him walking the walk, and talking the talk. He's also gentle and lowly in heart with you and me, sinners that come into His presence. So what that means is that Jesus is going to take His obedience, His absolute total moral perfection, and He's going to walk all the way to the cross, and He's going to suffer death there on the cross even though He doesn't deserve it. The only person in history who didn't deserve death. He's going to walk to the cross and he's going to take it. And the reason he's going to take it is so that he can there on the cross suffer the wrath of God for his people. And he is going to give to us his righteousness. The righteousness that God requires that he achieved, he's going to give that to us. gentle and lowly in heart. So in other words, he's taking up a heavy burden for you. He's tying it up. And he's saying, here is the heavy burden. It's absolute, total, moral perfection. The righteousness of God. Here it is. This is what's required. This is the burden that he's packaged up. And then he's putting it on his own shoulders instead of yours. So that he has to carry the pack. So his first critique of the Pharisees is, they tie up a burden. They don't help you bear it. 
But here, Jesus is saying what God requires from you. He supplies in me. See, this is why it's the heart of the gospel. This is really what it means to be a Christian. This is really what it means to believe the gospel. is to trust that God has done this in Christ. What He has required of me, absolute, total moral perfection, He has supplied in Christ. Don't buckle one ounce on what God requires. But we preach what He required, He supplied in Christ. The second thing that he says is in verse 5, the second critique of them, they want to be seen by others. Phylacteries, he mentions phylacteries and fringes as an example of that. So every holy day, every Sabbath, uh, every, every day except for Sabbath and the holy days, they would, Pharisees, and well, really a lot of Jewish people would wear these boxes strapped to their head. Literally, they would take a box that has a scroll in it that has the writings of the law on it, and they would bind it around their head, tie it with a leather strap. And then they would tie the same thing on their wrists, on their arms. And they did this because of texts like Deuteronomy 6, 8, which says, You shall bind the words of the law as a sign on your hand, and they, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now they took it literally to the point of binding a box on their forehead. They also have these prayer shawls that have fringes on them that kind of like they work through the tassels and it reminds them of prayers and things like that. And they, the Pharisees make theirs long. They make their phylacteries really big so they stand out like that. Seems ridiculous, right? But it, it signifies just how seriously they are taking the law. Or at least it's supposed to signify that in your head. And notice Jesus' problem, again, is not how literally they take Deuteronomy. That's not his problem. That's not what he says about them. But that they make it so large you can't help but notice. Their fringes are so long you can't help but notice them. And then in chapter 6 of Matthew he says their righteousness they do in front of others so that they can be seen. They want to be seen. Their prayers, they pray in front of others very loudly in the synagogues and the street corners so that they can be seen and heard praying and see how righteous they are. So as a result, they love having the best seats. They love the notoriety. They love the titles. The content of their religion is the notoriety that comes from being a teacher of the law. Their joy comes from being known by others. Now let's look at Jesus' disciples. He describes, starting in verse 8, there's this big change he signifies in verse 8 there with, uh, uh, but you, Jesus' disciples, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
The way he describes his own followers is really pretty simple. He applies it to them as teachers, as people that are going to go out and share this gospel message with other people. He applies it to them as teachers. But, but really, the message that he's getting to is one of humility for all of his followers. And it's really quite simple. He says they refuse titles. They're, they're, uh, and they're, those titles that he mentions there are mainly titles of priority. Notice the title of rabbi title of rabbi is a really significant title. It doesn't, it's not just merely teacher. That's, that's what it means. But the significance of being called rabbi in this culture is that you have great knowledge and you have great wisdom and people come to you, want to hear you talk about all kinds of things because of your knowledge and wisdom. You might recall from the Fiddler on the Roof. If you haven't seen it, you should. Remember Tevia? I know you don't remember the song if if I were a rich man, right? Of course, Tevia sits there and in part of a song, he dreams of being a rabbi, being someone of great importance. And he says, the most important men in the town would come to fawn on me. They would ask me to advise them like Solomon the Wise, posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes. And it won't make a bit of difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. Then he says, if I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray. And maybe have a seat by the eastern wall. And I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day. And that would be the sweetest thing of all. If I were a rich man. Yeah, Yeah, there you go going to be stuck in your head all day. You're just going to go around singing it. You're welcome. Now you can see in even the the little limerick or the the lyric to that verse, to the song, you can see that the position of a rabbi was someone of notoriety, someone of, of great importance. They're the ones of higher rank than the average person. That's the way that they're seen. He says, similarly, at the very end, don't be called instructors either, because it's the same kind of thing. You have a higher rank. And in the middle, he says this weird thing, call no man your father on earth. He's not talking about your physical father. He's talking about spiritual parents, a teacher of some sort. The rabbis, obviously, were revered in Jewish society. The teachers, the instructors, were were revered. They were of higher rank, but perhaps no one was of higher rank in Jewish society than the fathers that came before them. The Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, the Davids, the Isaiahs, the so on. You get the idea of people. It could be people not even in the Old Testament, people that were rabbis that came before, that had big schools where they taught tons of people. These were fathers of the Jewish faith. And their, their example that they set and their teaching left them in a higher rank. In today's Christian world, you will see some religions like Catholicism call their priest father. They will call uh, other Christians that have gone before that have achieved this higher rank. They will call them saints, right? Not generally applied to the whole congregation of Christians, but to specific people that were so holy, they are considered saints. These are the people that he's talking about. Call no one that because every single person is your brother. Instead, he says, he comes down to service. 
And he says, instead, the servant of Christ is the one who is to opt for service instead. Why? Because the servant of Christ, as his disciple, as his follower, is patterning his life after Jesus. That's the reason. Because as his disciples, as his followers, we're refusing titles of priority because we're coming to serve those people around us, opting to serve them instead of notoriety and titles and prestige and honor and seats at the main table and all of those kinds of forms of recognition that we might receive in the here and now. Because how did Christ serve? He came and gave his life for us even to the point of death, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross where he would be ridiculed. And that's the pattern that his disciples are to take up, whether it be them as teachers, refusing titles like rabbi, and and instead opting for titles like brother, even as a common Christian, just a person, normal, everyday person. All of us on the same level. Now, does that mean there shouldn't be people that have positions of authority? Should churches be leaderless, as an example? Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Or what about older people in the congregation? Just older people in the congregation. He says just a few verses before that in 1 Timothy 5, 1-2, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So in trying to interpret what Jesus means here, you can take it so far to where it's borderline disrespectful, even in the New Testament, where you refuse to recognize anyone's position of authority or honor in any way. But to help get the balance of what Jesus really means here, what we're striving for, I want you to look at the back end of each of these verses. Look at the back end of verse 8, where you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Look at verse 9, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 10, for you have one instructor, the Christ. This is precisely what Jesus is getting at here. He takes everyone and he puts them all on the same plane. That's the essence of what he's striving for here. It's that there's no position of inferiority or superiority because you have all been brought near by the same blood of Christ. Every single one of you are on the same level. You are all brothers because you have been brought near by the same blood of Christ. It required the same amount of grace of God to save you as it did the person next to you. As his disciples, essence of what he's saying here is that we are to embody the idea of being poor in spirit. We're to take the very essence of poverty of spirit and carry that around from day to day. Remember that phrase in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit means that you understand at all times that you didn't do anything to earn any favor with God. There's nothing that you did to put Him in your debt or to earn His favor. 
You didn't do anything for him to exalt you to any kind of position of superiority over anybody else. That's the reason you're to call everyone brothers. That's why the disciples do their tasks as elder or deacon or whatever with humility. Because they know that the guy in the back corner of the church who maybe a lot of people pass by and don't recognize, or maybe never learn his name, that guy in that back corner became a citizen of Christ's kingdom the same way the pastor did. Everyone before the throne of God stands completely equal and have to be saved by the blood of Christ. Not as though there's not respect for positions of authority, even kings and people like that. We know there is. It's that the one who is in the position of authority understands that he is just as much saved by grace as every single person in the pew. And even the Apostle Paul says of himself that, that he is the chief of sinners. It's rumored that G.K. Chesterton was asked by the Times of London, what's wrong with the world today? And he wrote back very simply, Dear Sir, I am. But this gets to the real issue that Jesus is driving at. The scribes see their position as elevated by God. I've earned this spot. God put me here because... He wants me to have a position of authority. And because they're in this honored position, the law is for thee and not for me. But look at Jesus. He humbles himself. He teaches, on the one hand, God's absolute moral perfection and then serves people all the way to death on the cross. So his followers then are to realize that if God's holiness is the righteous standard, if God's holiness is the righteous standard, I can never achieve it. I'm never going to get there. It's never going to be something that I can earn. It has to be done by Christ. So I require, in order to be saved, for Christ's bank account to be transferred over to my bank account. For my bank account that's completely in the red to be brought into the black only by the blood of Christ. That's the only way that it can happen. This is the constant attitude of the disciple. It's not just something that we uncover on Sunday morning. It's not just something that we agree to on Sunday morning. We confess our sins, we get up, we go on. This is something we carry about with us every day inside of each interaction that we engage with. Understanding that, you know what? I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I need the blood of Christ. The irony is that the person in the honored position that's brought near, that's set at the head table, that's put in the best places, that has to keep up appearances, the one who has to keep the outside of his life pristine and pretend as though there's nothing wrong on the inside or ignore it altogether is the one that's actually in bondage, though he seems like he's the most free. Their righteousness is a performance. I don't need this. I'm righteous. Meanwhile, the one who is humbled by the cross, the one who sees that he is poor, he's a poor wretch who doesn't deserve salvation, is the one who actually has freedom. Because he doesn't have to keep up appearances. He doesn't have to pretend to be something that he's not. He can come truly and say, this is who I am. 
I'm still figuring it out, but I know this. I'm brought near by the blood of Christ, and that's the only reason that I have salvation. He's the one that can truly say, I'm not what I should be, but thank God I'm not what I once was. It's Christ or bust for him, and it's him that's truly free. Now, we may all agree with that, and I think most of us do, but it has to hit us where we live. I want you to take just a, just a minute, and I want you to just, if I could use the phrase, open up your heart, just examine your life is what I mean. Just really look in the mirror for just a second. I know we've read countless times through the scriptures, but I really want you to think about this for just a second. As we examine ourselves, here is this little passage about the humility of the disciples of Christ, but when you really look at what he's saying, This radically transforms marriage. This radically transforms friendship. This radically transforms our interactions with any person we come in contact with. This radically transforms the parent-child relationship. And you see the people that go about this world being poor in spirit and being truly brought near by the blood of Christ and understanding their position, you see that person, you can identify that person by their patience and their ability to forgive others. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Or Matthew 6.14 and 15, this is Jesus, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I want you to consider for just a minute the spiritual freedom of someone who is patient and forgiving of others. No matter the sin against them, is patient and forgiving. First, they understand their own need for forgiveness. They understand how patient God has been with them. And they see those as having having sinned against them, not as their subordinate, but as their peer. As someone who is clearly on the same road they are. And who says to that person, I understand. I'm struggling too. I'm right there with you. We're on the same page. We're walking the same road. Both of us saved by the same blood. Now consider what it says when a person is unwilling to forgive someone else. It's saying to that person, you owe me for your transgression. You are my debtor. That's actually how Jesus describes it in Matthew 18, the very last parable in that chapter. Go read it sometime. Matthew 18, I think it starts in verse 21. He describes it exactly that way. Looking to someone else as they're your debtor. Imagine then how radically 
marriages would be transformed. If the husband was able to look at the wife and say, you know what? She doesn't have it figured out either. And she needs a lot of grace, and she needs a lot of patience. She needs a lot of forgiveness. Because she's a sinner too. And she's making it day to day like I am, all dependent on the grace of Christ. So maybe I can extend her that. And the wife do the same to the husband. Imagine how that would change the parent-child relationship, realizing that these little hellions are born wicked sinners. (laughs) They need patience. They need forgiveness. They need to understand what grace and mercy really is. They need to understand what compassion is, and they need to see that in me. Imagine how it would change churches altogether if we didn't feel like we had to come in here and put on happy faces to keep up appearances. Imagine if you were really struggling with something that you could sit in the pew or wherever you are and tell the person next to you about it. No matter how deep and how dark and how frustrating it really is, And that person would respond to you with grace and compassion because they're walking the same road. And they see no matter if your sin was tax evasion, oh no, and mine was a white lie, we see us both on the same road of recovery and redemption. Imagine how that would change our churches. Imagine how that would change both our witness to each other and our witness to the outside world if we could be open and honest in that regard. Here are the ways in which God has brought forgiveness about in my life and brought brought redemption about. And here are the things that I still struggle with on a daily basis. Here are the ways that I can encourage you and here are the ways that you can encourage me. Imagine how our churches will be utterly transformed. But have you ever been sitting in a church and you're caring about this burden of sin that you're dealing with day in and day out and it's weighing on you like a big cloud? You feel like you can't even tell anybody about it? unless they figure out who you really are. You ever felt like that? It's precisely the reason why Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In other words, let him carry it. Give up the charade of keeping up appearances like a Pharisee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer is that those for whom This word is crafted by you. It would penetrate the heart. It would enliven the mind and wake up the ears. That we could listen. That we could be attentive could heed the words spoken here. I pray for those who have a tremendous burden.
they would be able today, perhaps for the first time, be able to let it go. To confess it to you. To own it before others. To recognize the truth that we're all sinners in need of redemption. We thank you that you have provided that in Christ. I pray for all those that you have purchased through his blood. Including all those here. You would bring us near to the cross. And that in truth, we could pull down any masks. We could be open and honest with each other. We could be forthcoming with sin and things that distract. We could be forgiving of the people next to us. And that we could truly understand what it means to be saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.